You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 6th of November. And on the programme today, we looked at the obesity epidemic in the UAE. And that was off the back of an obesity conference in Abu Dhabi over the weekend. It emerged that nearly 20% of people living in the UAE are struggling with the disease. And nearly 40% of Emiratis are classed as obese. We discussed potential treatment and whether it's possible to have a genetic predisposition to the disorder. Meanwhile, have you started planning your holidays for the next year? Well, hold fire until you find out Skyscanner's latest trends report. Their CEO told us all about the hotspots for 2024. And did you spot the massive cruise ships that arrived in Dubai over the weekend? Well, they're there because cruise season has officially restarted. Dubai is expecting 150 ships over the winter season. We took a look at the routes and discussed the impact that they have on tourism in the Emirates. And health experts are warning cricketers and fans are at risk if they attend the World Cup game in Delhi because the air quality is even worse than normal. And that is ahead of the city's traditional pollution season. We discussed what can be done with Professor Prashant Kumar. Meanwhile, Chris McCarty, head of sports for Dubai I 103.8, joined us with all the latest sporting headlines, including uh, news from the Cricket World Cup. And Elon Musk has a new best friend. It's a chatbot called Grok, who apparently has a personality and loves sarcasm. We discussed whether that's a good thing with expert Professor Rob Sparrow. Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. Lovely to have you with us this sunny Monday morning. And we're going to take a look at obesity in the UAE right now because experts at a conference over the weekend in Abu Dhabi were warning of an epidemic in the country. Now, nearly 20% of people living in the UAE are struggling with the lifestyle disease. Nearly 40% of Emiratis are obese. Now, You might wonder, you know, why is this a problem? Well, you know, obviously this excessive weight uh, can make other diseases much more likely. Doctors speak of the risk of cardiovascular disease, obviously type 2 diabetes. There's an increase in cancer, osteoarthritis, work disability and sleep apnea. And international doctors at this, which was the fifth edition of the UAE Obesity Conference, were very deliberately exploring potential preventative uh, treatment strategies. Uh, And they also considered, uh, and this is a really interesting topic, whether there could be an inherited obesity risk in the Emirati population. Joining me now is one of the chairs of the conference. Uh, We've got consultant endocrinologist Dr. Sarah Suleiman joining us on the line. She's clinical leader for obesity and bariatrics at Imperial College London Diabetes Centre in Abu Dhabi. Thank you so much, Dr. Sarah, for taking the time to join me on the line. I know you've had a very busy weekend indeed. Tell me, why is obesity such a difficult disease to treat? In many ways, you know, from the outside layman's point of view, you'd think it was quite simple, you know, that people should just eat less and exercise more. But of course, it's way more complex than that, isn't it? Good morning. And thank you very much for having me with you. Um, I agree 100%. It is a very complex disease. It's a chronic disease. And unlike what we used to say historically, that it's a lifestyle disease, it is very much a genetic disease. It's how you're made. And to prove that, within the same family, children who eat the same food, um, some of them will be a healthy weight and some will carry obesity, despite exactly the same environment. If we look at our history, we were hunter-gatherers until maybe 100, 200 years ago, And those of us who are alive today are actually offspring of humans who were able to store and therefore are predisposed to obesity. Different levels of that. Um, However, we are products of that. What's happened in the last maybe 40, 50 years is that the environment has changed. It's become far more obesogenic, access to high calorific food, um, reduced exercise, cars, air conditioning, staying indoors, long hours of work, 
it's all uncovered this genetic predisposition. Not only is the genetic predisposition there, but actually lifestyle affects our genes, what's called epigenetic regulation, such that if a pregnant woman, for example, carries extra weight, um, she predisposes that child to obesity, or if she has diabetes, she will predispose that child to obesity. So I think one of the big things we're talking about is removing stigma um, and moving away from it's a lifestyle choice, you're doing the wrong thing, understanding that it is a disease, that it does require treatment, and that treatment may be lifestyle changes, but often people with um, severe obesity or advanced stages of obesity will need help with medication or surgery. Um, and we, we do need to just take a little step back and understand that it's not their fault. I am very interested by that, the fact that it, that, that you believe that, well, no, that it's been scientifically proven, I presume, in studies that people can have a genetic predisposition for it. Because obviously here in the UAE, there is a very large number of people who are struggling with the disease. Do you think it's conceivable that Emiratis, for example, could have a genetic predisposition as a, as a nationality? So that's an excellent question. Um, I don't think Emiratis per se, the whole world, is carrying extra weight. But this region, so the Middle East, um, the GCC, are world leaders in that aspect. So in the top 20 countries, five of the countries in the Middle East, um, top 20 countries for obesity, according to the World Obesity Federation, five of the Middle East countries are there. And there are, there are probably good reasons for that. Affluence arrived a little bit later, and therefore that genetic predisposition is, is a little bit higher. Um, consanguinity is another reason that might uncover some of the forms of obesity that are a bit rarer elsewhere. But actually, uh, I've lived in Abu Dhabi for 12 years. You live in Dubai. The lifestyle here is very easy, and therefore carrying extra weight isn't that hard. Certainly is. I mean, we joke about in Dubai that you move here and you get the Dubai stone because uh, we all have a bit too much fun going to the brunches. And, you know, you're a bit more sedentary potentially during the summer than you might be in other countries. Of course, one of the, the great things about the UAE is that there is extensive genomic research going on. You know, everyone who is Emirati who lives in this country is in, encouraged to give their blood so that their genetic makeup can be analysed. Does that mean that we could soon see really quite impressive research coming out of this country on this subject? Absolutely. So at the moment, and thank you very much for mentioning that, at the moment, the UAE is definitely lining itself up to be a world leader in genomics. So the Emirati Genome Project is a very aspirational project um, aiming to cover every single Emirati, so over a million people, to look at the whole genome. Um, so effectively a textbook of all the DNA of every single individual. Not only that, but also to look at the epigenetic regulation. So the data that will be available is stunning. As someone with a PhD in genetics, so my background is not only um, endocrinology, but I've done a PhD in Oxford in genetics, this would be all Christmases arrived at the same time. Um, it is unbelievable data. The analysis is going to take a while, I'm sure, but there will be very interesting things that come out of that. So the only, I'm going to ask a slightly tricky question now, but realistically, isn't there a risk that if we say that there is a genetic predisposition for people to have obesity, isn't there a concern that that is removing the responsibility of free will to a certain extent, that some people do choose to overeat and not exercise enough. So I am going to actually stand up for them and say nobody would choose to be obese. Um, I understand your concern that people will continue to be less active and people will make choices that aren't the healthiest choices. And the focus is very much on health rather than the absolute weight. It's focused on obesity itself and its associated diseases, diabetes, high blood pressure, you mentioned a few of them, cardiovascular disease. But I would argue the other side of the coin is nobody wakes up in the morning thinking, I'm going to eat 
stodge because I would like to be obese. Everyone who carries extra weight, and particularly those who have health risks with it, has struggled in one form or another. Understanding this, I think, helps remove the stigma and helps us give them appropriate treatment. Now, the counter argument to that is as a public health system, we do need to make life a lot easier by increasing activity, by providing healthy foods, by making um, less healthy foods less accessible, particularly to children. And certainly, again, the UAE is a world leader in that. Um, the whole UAE, Abu Dhabi in particular, and Abu Dhabi Public Health Center, have been doing amazing work with lots of strategies, lots of um, improving the environment, cycling tracks, lots of school health, education, uh, lots of tracking data on people. But I think that the intrinsic thing we need to understand, I mean, the World Health Organization recognized obesity as a disease almost 40 years ago. And yet there are very few countries in the world that accept that it is a disease. And therefore, it's very difficult to get medication, for example, funded, uh, because if you're if it's weight management rather than treating a disease, then it's very difficult to get everyone on board. Do you think people are suffering in silence because of that stigma, because of that issue that I just pinpointed there, that many people, if they see someone who's obese, presume that it is a, a choice, that, that that person has made a choice? Absolutely. And that is, that is something that we are working very hard to fix. In children, studies show that children who carry extra weight have are affected more by stigma than those who have gender identity issues, um, race issues, um, disabilities, educational inabilities. It, can't, it is head and shoulders above all of that. And I think it is time that we started changing that. I've got about a minute left with you, and I can't let you go without asking you about the weight loss drugs like Ozempic that have been not just hitting the headlines, but also being used to, you know, increasingly around the world, but also here in the UAE. What would be your view of drugs like Ozempic? So as someone who's an obesity physician, we had lots of drugs that were not terribly successful and had side effects. With the advent of Ozempic and that entire family, we actually have drugs that work. However, I would advise that they are done under the supervision of a trained physician and that people who need it get it rather than it becoming a lifestyle med medicine. All drugs, any drug, will have side effects. And again, if it's done in a proper way, it's easy to mitigate against that. Dr. Sarah, an absolute pleasure to have you join us on the line. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to join us on the agenda after a very busy weekend at the fifth edition of the UAE Obesity Conference. You've just been listening to the voice of Dr. Sarah Suleiman, who's a consultant endocrinologist. She's also clinical lead for obesity and bariatrics at Imperial College London Diabetes Centre here in Abu Dhabi. Well, here in the UAE, I'm in Dubai at the moment. Uh, Dr. Suleiman, thank you very much indeed for your time. Fascinating there to, to finish on, on the topic of those uh, Ozempic style weight loss drugs and, and their potential efficacy. Coming up in the next few minutes, we're actually going to turn our attention towards another potential treatment, which is, of course, um, more of the, the sort of bariatric surgery. Uh, we're going to be joined by a, a surgeon in the next few minutes, Dr. Boborko Bereski, uh, so we can discuss that in further details. But if you're affected by this story, please do get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you. Talking there about the social stigma of obesity. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there. Welcome back to the programme. Yep, we are taking a look at obesity on the show today. That is off the back of really quite shocking figures that came out of the UAE Obesity Conference over the weekend in Abu Dhabi. It turns out that nearly 20% of people living in the UAE are struggling with the disease. Nearly 40% of Emiratis are obese. Now, international doctors at that conference were warning of a looming epidemic. And of course, one treatment that is getting a lot of publicity at the moment are the weight loss drugs like Ozempic and Wegovy. Now, the drugs, which were, of course, originally designed to treat diabetes, work by slowing down your digestion. But 
and, and it has to be said, they have been proven to be very effective indeed. Patients lose about 15 to, to 20 percent of, of their weight really quite quickly. Whether or not it stays off remains to be seen. I think the studies are still going through on that. But these drugs are not the only option. Some obese patients choose surgery instead. And I'm joined now by a consultant bariatric surgeon, Dr. Biborka Bereski, who works in MediClinic. Uh, Dr. Biborka, how are you? Fantastic to have you join us on the line. Um, lots of people are talking about these weight loss drugs, but it isn't the only option for obese patients, is it? Hi, good morning, Georgia. Thank you for having me today morning. Yes, actually, weight loss drugs are very, very popular now, but we need to understand that this is not the holy grail. So the weight loss drugs are not, uh, how to say, they are not holy grail of obesity treatment because obesity is a chronic, relapsing uh and a progressive disease and it's a metabolic disease and it's very important to understand even for all people and even for our colleagues that obesity is a disease so if hypertension is a disease we need to treat diabetes is a disease we need to treat obesity is a disease as well so how can we characterize the level of the obesity we are using the bmi uh, classification so bmi is the ratio of the weight and height and actually, we can say that from BMI 30 to 35, it's already a class one obesity and it's just going up. So obesity, it's a very complex disease. And it's not just because of the lack of exercise and uh, eating too much. It's much more complex. Now we understand much more about it. We know it's it's a very uh, uh, complex, uh, uh, complex state. Uh, so that's why uh, the, the treatment is as well complex. So there is no shortcut to weight loss. Whatever treatment we use, we always need to think about the lifestyle changes, the diet, the eating behavior, the exercise, the psychological and environmental background of the patient. And pharmacotherapy is just one of the options. That's why each and every patient needs to be treated by a multidisciplinary or rather we call it transdisciplinary team. Here at MediClinic, I work at MediClinic, uh, we are accredited by the EASO, which is the European organization for uh, for obesity management. So we have the dietitian, endocrinologist, psychologist, uh, we have life coaches, we have gastroenterologists, surgeons, uh, sport medicine physicians, physiotherapists. So we are working like, as a whole team. We need to understand that to approach the obesity treatment, it's, it's always a holistic treatment. So how we start? So if once we see a patient I always refer the patient, the dietitian, and the endocrinologist just to see whether uh, there, there are any hormonal reasons for the for the weight gain. It's, it can be associated by the thyroid disease or or anything else. So the the, the endocrinologist will run a couple of blood tests. The dietitian will sit with the patient and we check the check the mistakes uh, errors in the in the eating behavior. And then, according to the, the patient's profile, we can tailor an individual treatment to the patient. So I know that the weight loss drugs are very popular and patients think that there is a shortcut to it, but they are not without consequences. We need to be very careful. And uh, now actually working, we are working on it. How can we uh, standardize more the use of the, of, the, uh, of the medications as well? Because it should be prescribed by a doctor after proper evaluation and then uh, it can be started to use. But uh, we really need to know that not every patient is for pharmacotherapy. Sometimes we, we suggest like, for example, endoscopic therapy, let's say the gastric balloons are still there or metabolic or bariatric surgery. So, for example, if I see a patient with BMI of, let's say, 50, 150 kilo uh, who has tried all the means of of um, uh, of medical treatment and exercise and diet and still not losing, of course, the medication wouldn't be the first option. Or maybe we would try for a couple of months, but it fails, so the patient will definitely need uh, metabolic and bariatric surgery. Bariatric so surgery is, is yeah. so bariatric surgery is quite a serious step to take, of course, but is it effective? You know, if you're going to go through the surgery, can you be guaranteed of, of success? What we need to understand, the surgery is not the last resort. It's not the last resort. It can be even the first step. It's very, very effective. The patient can lose up to 30 to 35% of the total body weight. With weight loss medications, you can lose up to 20 to 22% of the total body weight. Uh, but what's the, the question is, what happens when you stop the medication? So the weight can come back again. 
that's why it should be like, you know, it, it's a holistic multidisciplinary treatment. So with the surgery, the main surgical surgery types is the laparoscopic sleep gastrectomy, Rouen bigastric bypass and mini bypass. This is what uh, mostly we do. Um, now, like 70% of the patients are choosing to have sleep gastrectomy, uh, where we are removing 80% of the stomach. Regarding the effect of the surgery, so how does it work? Uh, Basically, with the sieve gastectomy, removing 80% of the stomach, uh, which will, uh, you know, at the end, we will have about 20, 200 milliliter of, of the stomach, which is shape and size of a banana, which is causing restriction. So the patient will be not able to eat uh, bigger portions. Besides, there is a hormonal effect. Actually, in the upper bit of the stomach, there is a hormone so-called ghrelin. Ghrelin is a hunger hormone, and actually this is the groundbreaking of the past decade, uh, the research about the gut hormones. When I was a medical student, we didn't study about gut hormones, but now they got recently discovered and they are very, very powerful. We didn't know that we have a hormone in our stomach or small bowel. Yeah. So what we do with the sleep gastrectomy, we are removing even this um, hunger hormone, the ghrelin, so the patient will be less hungry and they will have much earlier satiety. Really? With the gastric bypass surgery, yes, it's really, it's really amazing. And the, the other surgery, the bypass surgeries, actually we're just creating a sto small stomach pouch and connecting it with a small bowel, which is adding an extra effect, which we call it malabsorption, as the food will directly like jump into the small bowel, so it will not absorb in a way like it before. But again, um, the hormones are, are very, very strong and it has a hormonal effect too, causing less hunger and a durable effect. So the reason why we are doing the surgery, so once somebody has a bariatric surgery, is actually for a lifetime, but we need to take care of it. My professor always said that we are giving you a key of Ferrari, but it's up to you, I mean, up to the patient that how you drive it. And you still need the multidisciplinary team, you need the follow-up, you need the blood check, and you need to comply with all the rules to, to have the maximum effect. Dr. Biborka, amazing to get you on the radio. Thank you so much for talking us through the way that that surgery works, the way that it can be effective. Uh, Dr. Biborka Bereski is a consultant, general laparoscopic, bariatric and metabolic surgeon with MediClinic here in Dubai. Thank you very much indeed for your time here on The Agenda. Welcome back to the agenda. Quick question for you to start off this Monday morning, if you've just tuned in. Have you started thinking about next year's holidays yet? Or am I, am I saying it too soon? I've already planned two holidays next week. I like to get them in really early, especially now flights cost a fortune. I tend to sort of book them up and then, especially because you can book the hotel without paying for it. So we've booked the flights and got them reasonably cheap. We're going to go to Georgia at half term uh, for skiing. The children love skiing. Personally, not so keen, but, uh, you know, uh, absolutely fine to get a bit of exercise. But yeah, I mean, what are you planning to do? Have you got any sense of when you're going to take a break? Uh, also, we've got two Eids and they're a bit earlier this year. So you've got one at the beginning of April and then I guess one a couple of months later. It must be in June now. Um, so always worth booking those up because you can sort of get free holiday days uh, when they're the bank holidays. Um, and and I, I have to say though, I think we are in the minority if we have booked a holiday because uh, travel giant Skyscanner's annual trends report is out. And it seems that we are still something of a, a nation of last minute adventurers. Um, everyone books last minute here. It's very well known. And while that might not have changed, the findings do offer some surprises, not least about what we now see as our priorities when it comes to our holiday choices. I wanted to find out more. So a little earlier, I sat down with the firm's CEO, John Mangalars, and he explained that his researchers saw four, yep, four unexpected trends emerge. So one was around food, which I can understand. It might be a little bit from the TV, like there's a lot of TV like programs around food. So that might be a reason, but uh, I was surprised. Not so surprising. It's like a nice break from the madness and the, and the busy life. I think Dubai is very vibrant. The UAE is very vibrant. So I can imagine people want to take a break, probably visiting some friends and family there as well. Then it was like visiting movie sets. I've done this myself where actually I went to the north of Scotland, to the Isle of Skye to see like the Skyfall set. So I, I can like, yeah, that's, that's, that's cool. That's quite a big deal there. And then the last one is around festivals where like people want to travel for that. So I thought it was a, an unexpected list to me. So it's, it confirms like it's worth keep doing these, these, these surveys, not boring yet. 
It's definitely not boring. It's really intriguing. And, and all of those, I wouldn't have necessarily put top of the list for travellers from the UAE. So you've got a real emphasis there on, on sort of culture uh, and foodie visits as well. Where do UAE travellers most want to go? It's probably related to like uh, the first, uh, the destinations, but a lot of it is Europe, European cities. I think that goes back to the food and the festivals and, and what have you and the film sets. Japan's back, which is cool. I, I personally I love Japan. And New York ever strong, like New York's still on the list. But I would say also that the UAE travelers, they want to try new things. They go at short notice and they go quite frequently. So UAE travelers travel more than the typical uh, country and they're more spontaneous. Um, and we try to support that as well. It is very typical of the UAE, that short notice. It's one. It's a really interesting thing because often our bank holidays or our public holidays are announced quite late. And I think that has got people into the habit of booking last minute. And of course, yeah, that is when price checking websites like yourselves can, can really come in useful. I'm intrigued to know where your travellers are finding inspiration. Obviously, people that come to the UAE are often attracted by Instagram. Dubai is one of the most popular sort of tags, hashtags on Instagram. But what's attracting people to, for example, Europe, Japan, New York? Where people get inspiration, I think it's a hybrid. So when you look at Skyscanner, two out of the three people come to us to get inspiration. So they don't know the date, they don't know the destination, they don't know the budget, and they really figure out those kind of things get like a bit of context where they can go so i think it's kind of a a blend between it is instagram because we don't do like the high level inspiration we do some of that but they do come to skyscanner to figure out like if they can afford like you can search for the seychelles or for the maldives but if you can't afford it why would you then go to instagram and get all like excited about going to the maldives so we do quite a bit of work on showing destinations and sort of like ideas and that also uh, show the cost and and the period of the year you should go there. And I think that is then combined with the blogs and Instagram and what have you. People search a lot, but, but we play a big role in sort of guiding that search and organizing that search around budget and dates and stuff like that. You mentioned budget there. Is that a key deciding factor for UAE travelers when they're deciding where they want to go and, and how long for? Yeah, budget remains a key factor, but it doesn't slow people down because it's... I think temporarily a bit more expensive. Uh, some of the costs that are in the system, some taxes that are f- that are gonna gonna stay, but some costs is because of, I would call it the COVID hangover, where like there's not enough aircraft, there's not enough pilots, there's not enough crew, and as we're ramping up, still the capacity is only at like 95 percent. So the capacity is lower. People want to travel because they have been able, have not been able to travel for like three four years. So that combination of like I want to travel and there's not enough capacity, and some more higher taxes increases the price that will normalize as we go forward like you know every week every day new aircrafts are being delivered new pilots are being trained new crews being trained so that will normalize but it's going to last for i think for another 12 to 18 months before it really comes down and before yeah the super bargain weeks are back again that's a very interesting outlook because i think we're all desperate for more reasonable flights to make a return and i have heard some travel experts suggest that they think that that golden era of cheap flights is over but you do see it potentially coming back in 18 months or so uh, yeah it depends on what you call a, a cheap flight there's a couple of trends there one is people want to have the right flight they don't necessarily go for like the cheapest they would say like i have two bags or one bag i want to have some leg room and stuff like that i don't want to have a layover i just want to be quicker people are willing to pay a bit more for the right flight the other thing is when you have super low cost flights i think there's a sustainability question but when you see like the sort of the mid-range flights five six seven eight ten hours the flights that typically are being taken by people from UAE, I think that's that's where the, the price will come down. Uh, so like the Australia, the Southeast Asia, the back into Europe, like the New York one, uh, their co- competition will return and price will come down. Personally, I believe, although low cost is still growing rapidly, the super cheap flights, I think people will start questioning that from a sustainability perspective. That sustainability perspective obviously is looming very large in everyone's mind at the moment. We're here in the UAE. It's the year of sustainability. We're hosting COP28 uh, in November and December. Do you think that as the public becomes more conscious of their eco obligations, one could call it, do you think people might slow down or reduce the amount of travelling that they're doing? 
we we don't see the the amount of traveling slowing down. I think there will though be like a mix of like public opinion, government influence, and some government regulation that is going to drive the low low cost prices up. Which I think if you can take the train, why why don't take the train? We do, for example, like a Skyscanner. We say, hey, like if you fly from like London to Manchester, there's also a train. You can book the train. So we act, we're actively promoting the train, although we don't make a lot of money from the train. But we we do find it our our social responsibility to promote those alternatives because, yeah, we only have one planet. That is a fascinating sort of element that you've added into the website there, that it facilitates people making the greener choice ultimately. And I think hopefully many more sort of online platforms, many more industries are, are attempting to do the same thing. They're attempting yeah, to, yeah. to play their part. I can't let you go without asking you for tips for travellers looking for a good deal, because I definitely count myself among that number. I've now turned into an old person and I now book my flights many months in advance. I've got my February half term booked. I've got my Eid holiday booked and I've got reasonably good deals as a consequence. But nevertheless, sometimes I might just want to jump on a flight quickly. So what are your what are your tips? Yeah, I think uh, search quite a bit, like take your time. So ideally you, you think like six, eight weeks before or three months. You don't have to book three months before, but like do some research on routes uh, airlines like layover time and airports Some, sometimes like when you drive a little bit from, from airport A to airport B uh, you can make a good deal and the other thing is keep an eye on the press like when new capacity comes online like when an airline buys for example new aircrafts they need to fill them and they're, they're typically willing to like make a good deal until they reach like 70-80% capacity of that flight so that's also a, a personal trick I would advise and then like I said use tools like search everywhere just to see where the bargains are Really interesting there to hear from the CEO of Skyscanner John Mangalars giving us uh, or just closing off there with a few tips on how to get cheap flights I'd love to know where you're planning to go on holiday let's try and get a sense of the UAE trends where you're heading off uh, for Eid next year or maybe for half term or closer to you know we've got a festive season coming up so maybe you're going away then you're listening to the uae's number one talk radio station this is the agenda with georgia tolly on dubai i 103.8 welcome back to the show good to have you with us and as i mentioned earlier cruise season in dubai has officially started uh, that was with the arrival of the mine sheaf two last week. That's the name of the cruise ship. And the sector certainly seems to be booming. Dubai's expecting 150 ships over the winter. And it's welcoming several different ones, several new ones, including the Resilient Ladyship by Virgin Voyages. Oh, I get that now. Resilient Ladyship by Virgin Voyages. Dubai's got two major terminals, obviously, for the cruise ships. There's the Mina Rashid, which has been around for ages. Uh, that can accommodate up to seven cruise ships simultaneously. And then in the last few years, we got the newer Dubai Harbour, which is massive. It's the largest terminal in the Eastern Hemisphere, and it's capable of accommodating even the largest cruise ships. I always describe Dubai Harbour as a sort of stealth mega project because I think a lot of what happened out at Dubai Harbour happened under the water and so you can't sort of see it because they had to really dig down to allow these big cruise ships in. Um, but yes, so that is a, a sort of stealth mega project seems to be doing very well indeed. So how big a deal is the cruise market for the tourism industry here? Let us find out. Joining me now is Dominic Narano, who is a regional sales manager for Cruise Master and they in turn are the leading cruise agency in the Middle East. He's done me the of joining me in the studio. Dominic, lovely to have you with us. Thank you very much indeed. Cruise Thank you, Georgia. Thanks for having me. Lovely to have you here. Cruise season restarted. Yep. How big a deal is it for the tourism sector? Well, if I may um, paint a picture for you, um, it starts all as early as November going through March every year. Uh, we're talking about um, seven, eight itineraries back to back every week, November through March. Um five ships by four cruise lines, bringing about 20,000 passengers per sailing every week, multiplied by the number of weeks until March is what That is a lot. That, that is the actual incoming of guests um, sailing out of Dubai, uh, where these cruise ships are home ported. And uh, mainly these are by um, MNC Cruises, uh, Costa, um, TUI cruises, that is the Mindshift 2, and of course, IDA cruises, 
which uh, caters to mostly the German clients. Mm. So um, what we have here is um, high spenders uh, flying in from um, the US and the Europe, Europe being the biggest market. And uh, it has been around for the past decade. Uh, MSC Costa um, has been consistent in uh, uh, bringing their ships in the Middle East for the past 10 years, at least consistently. So, yeah. Oh, so big money, good stuff, brings in lots of tourists and with their tourist dollars and tourist euros. You mentioned there that some of the ships have made Dubai their home port. Is that what every city is looking for? Do you, d- Does home port equal more dollars spent? It definitely is. Uh, home porting is where a cruise line would um, uh, deploy their ships for at least three to six months, depending on the season. Uh, and Dubai being in the Middle East, um, uh, the weather is the most favorable during the winters, anytime starting from November through March, if you're lucky, up to April. Um, so what we do have is uh, these ships would these cruise lines would deploy their ships during this time alone and home port it in a favorable city, which is quite pivotal uh, for the rest of the world to fly in, thanks to Emirates Airlines, where we are connected to the entire world, which makes it very seamless for people to fly into Dubai. And then, of course, Dubai is everybody's bucket list. So why not Dubai? By, by all means, in terms of the infrastructure, if you have been to the um, uh, Port Rashid uh, or the Dubai Harbour, the new one for that matter, uh, what we are seeing is world-class cruise terminal facilities. Um, I've been fortunate enough to sail out of many cities across the world. And I should say um, Dubai has done a wonderful job in terms of creating the right infrastructure for these ships to home port. Because it's about getting your passengers on and off those ships seamlessly without any holdups for passport control because you want them on land spending money as quickly as possible, basically. So where are they going when they're getting on these cruise ships? Where do they head? So um, uh, although it's home ported in Dubai, uh, it's covering the entire Gulf area. Um, So um, combined with all these cruise lines, we cover the entire Arabian Gulf, uh, UAE, uh, Oman, um, Qatar, Bahrain, and back to Dubai. So in Dubai itself, we have three ports that the cruise ships on an average cover, which would be Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Sarbanias, and Kurfakan, four ports. Wow, okay. So you will do four stops, even just in our small country, the UAE? Absolutely. It's a seven-night sailing, so uh, there are cruise lines. Some of the ships do a home porting, no, not a home porting, do a, a port of call in these in these uh, ports in UAE. And of course, in Bahrain, it will be Manama, Qatar it would be Doha, and uh, and in Oman we have two ports of call, which is um, Musket and uh, Kasab. Tell me a bit about what people are getting on board these ships, because I have to say, I mean, because I live here, those stops don't sound sort of massively awe-inspiring, if you know what Neither I mean. Not me. like well, not like when you're going around <laughs> Europe and you know one thing is Positano and then it's Venice, and you know you're in a different country every True. single time. True. But but that doesn't matter, does it? Because the ships are trips in themselves well um the the main idea of someone going on a cruise holiday is definitely explore the destination um but then um it's also to have a resort style vacation on board the ship so what cruise vacations offer is best of both worlds you get to live in a resort and you get to see the different um different sites around the world i mean in a seven-night itinerary in Europe, you cover on an average five to six cities if you were to do the Mediterranean belt. And uh, and plus, you get to be on board. Um, so, you know, you pack and unpack only once. You don't have to hop from one city to another city by plane or by train. Um, uh, you save a lot of time. Easy to move around with families, with smaller children. And um, and you you like you rightly said, if you if you wish to get off, you get off. If you wish to be on board with the shore excursions, you can, or you explore the port by yourself. Tell me a bit about some of the facilities on board, because I've never actually been on one of these things, but you can see that they've got water slides on them from from shore. Well, uh, water slides would be an understatement today. Um, Think about having a three-layer go-karting circuit on board a ship. Um, That's that's how evolved uh, cruise lines are today. We're talking about um, the biggest ship 
um, say about 6,600 guests on board, we are talking about approximately 3,000 rooms or cabins or staterooms as we call it on ships. Um, you you name the kind of facility or the amenity you have it on board. You're, you're having you're having pools. You're having um, wave pools uh, where you could do the surfing. Uh, then of course you have um, uh, the 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 theme parks as you call it. Water slides would be just 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 small, but then these are huge 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 water slides on board. Um, uh, Multi level um, uh, amenities in terms of world cuisines. Uh, the watering holes on board uh, with different themes, uh, and of course, world-class cuisine on board, uh, Michelin-starred. Um, think about having a Nobu restaurant on board a ship. I mean, we probably have one in Dubai over here. My goodness. Um, I recently was on one of the sh one of the cruise ships, and uh, they are the only ones who have the Nobu restaurant on board. I mean, I probably wouldn't be able to afford a Nobu restaurant over here, but then, but then, uh, this was this was part of your cruise fare, which is an all-inclusive nature. That's the best part. I mean, it's an all-inclusive. You pay you pay almost for everything that you have on board. Well, if you if I'm not here tomorrow, you'll know where I've gone <laughs> uh, because that sounds awesome, Dominic. A great pleasure to have you join us in the studio. Thank you very much Thank indeed you very much. for your time, Dominic Naranio, there, sales manager for Cruise Master, regional sales manager, uh, and Cruise Master, of course, the leading cruise agency in the Middle East. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to The Agenda. Always good to have you listening to the Dubai Eye 103.8. And you're going to enjoy the next bit because um, we've got a really fascinating story coming out of Delhi. Uh, there is thick, toxic smog cloaking uh, the city at the moment. And this is only the beginning of the city's traditional pollution season. Uh, you've got air quality poorer than ever expected before. And... As schools shut and non-essential construction is halted, there are also concerns that the smog could have an impact on the upcoming Cricket World Cup final. In fact, you've already got teams choosing not to practice because they're worried about the health of their players. Now, the air quality index in the city has hit 500. That is the highest available measurement of pollution, and it is a staggering 100 times the limit that the World Health Organization deems healthy. So what on earth can be done about it? What is causing it and what can be done about it? Joining me now to discuss that is Prashant Kumar. He is a professor in air quality and health at Surrey University in the United Kingdom, also founding director of the Global Centre for Clean Air Research. Professor Kumar, thanks so much for joining me on Teams. Why does air quality continue to be such a pressing problem in, in Delhi? It's the, the fact that I say, you know, it's, a, it's an annual occurrence. Surely someone's figured out what to do? What to do about it? Yeah. So, thank you very much uh, for having me. Uh, so, Delhi is a, a quite an interesting case in the sense that uh, it's a landlocked city. So, you could see that uh, um, it does not really benefit like other cities like Mumbai, where uh, you know you can have the sea breeze which can kind of flush out the air, the dirty air from the uh, you know from the city. So, being landlocked, that also makes it kind of vulnerable. Uh, to the activities which are happening you know, in its surroundings. And one of those activities is the, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the agriculture waste burning. So you could see that uh, this is a kind of a crop season and uh, a lot of this uh, waste which is coming from the crops is being burned actually. And the, the good or bad thing about the air pollution is that it does not have the boundaries. So it can flow from one place to another. And if the winds are towards Delhi, it means that no matter where these things are happening in its vicinity, it will just flow through Delhi. So it really doesn't matter what you do within the city at that time uh, if the concentrations coming into the city are higher. So this makes actually city a special case uh, in terms of uh, uh, where the pollution is coming. But at the same time, you also got then some of the unaccounted activities in Delhi during winters, and that could include the burning of the wood, you know, the waste actually. So, for example, you got the biomass in the in the form of like uh, the wood and other things, which people try to use along the roadsides uh, just to uh, you know keep themselves warm because it's a it's a winter season. And the third factor is the mythology. So the um, the weather 
does not really uh, you know favor the daily conditions so for example if you got the the colder weather then it kind of creates an inversion condition so it's basically not allow the emissions to disperse as freely as it happens during the summer so it kind of trapped actually you know the closer to the um, uh, to the uh, to the ground level to increase those concentrations so it becomes kind of a you know the um, uh, the peculiar combination of these things which makes the things worse and basically the the original problem comes from the burning of the crops so has the government attempted to stop the farmers burning those crops there has been uh, initiatives where they have been trying actually to get rid of this, uh, uh, you know, this uh, uh, this agriculture waste and give options to the farmers. But since those things are not regulated, so there is no guarantee whether those uh, measures are being implemented. Because at the end of the day, the farmers need to do the things what they need to do in order to survive actually or to get their, you know, the, uh, the, their field ready for the next crop. So, um, so this this becomes kind of an you know the the challenge and the issue is that because um, there are different governments, which are kind of reining, uh, you know those regions uh, around Delhi. So there is a a governance issue as well. So you might have actually those measures put in place in center, but the government actually if they don't see that in the same way, uh, which are in the uh, in the peripheral areas, that that makes actually things complicated. So this makes it important. Uh, to have actually a clear dialogue and understanding on this issue, uh, uh, you know, by not even thinking about the political boundaries, because the pollution will not do that. You know, they don't. It doesn't see actually any any boundary. Sir, it's great pleasure to have you join us here on the agenda. Thank you very much indeed for your time. That's Professor Prashant Kumar, who's a professor in air quality and health, and also founding director of the Global Centre for Clean Air Research. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to The Agenda. Good to have you with us this Monday morning. Uh, We're going to turn our attention to our sporting headlines now. Earlier, I was joined by sports editor Chris McCarty, and he kicked off proceedings with a look at the weekend's cricket action, and plenty of it there was. We say a huge congratulations to India again. It seems like I'm a stuck record because they won yet again in this Cricket World Cup. I make that now eight wins out of eight. They smashed a side that I've been talking up as their biggest rivals in this Cricket World Cup. 326 for five did India make in their innings. Virat Kohli, his 49th ODI century. That's brought him level with the legendary Sachin Tendulkar on his 35th birthday, incidentally, as well. And in response, India skittling South Africa out for just 80. Three. Yes, you heard that right. South Africa all out for 83. It's awful. I mean, it's terrible. I think it matches their lowest ever score, if I believe, in ODI. And India won by 243 runs. Just give them the trophy now. Well, but Pakistan, their greatest well, rivals, not, yeah, not, not taking it, it lying down. Absolutely not. They were victorious over New Zealand on Saturday. It was the Duckworth-Lewis-Stern uh, method. It eventually saw them over the line by 21 runs. England, they just want to be packing their bags and heading home. They were beaten by their great rivals, Australia, by 33 runs on Saturday. England's defence of this Cricket World Cup, it's been nothing, uh, and well, nothing short of a whimper, really. They have been abject failures. And I take no glee from saying that. I actually don't mind the England cricket side but yeah they've not been at the races Australia very much in the hunt for a last four spot and with Pakistan's victory over the Kiwis Pakistan have given themselves a chance of making the last four now but they're making up the numbers everyone is making up the numbers India a class apart they will be and I'm going to say this and then maybe Ooh, it's so risky I'm it's so risky it. they're going to win the okay. Cricket World Cup Okay, well, obviously, I will come back to you on the, on that in <laughs> the future. Win. I think Jen is clipping it for me right now. It's fine. Uh, you do seem very much more upbeat this morning. It's not because you're here in the studio with no. me, though, is it? Let's be honest. It's always about sport. It is always about sport. My my life is sad as I am. My, my peaks and troughs. My mood is determined by my favourite sporting entities and individuals doing things at a weekend. And it wasn't pretty. Oh, it wasn't pretty. But Man United did beat Fulham by a goal to nil on Saturday lunchtime kickoff in the UK which means I was able to sleep like a baby (laughs) on Saturday night and uh, yes a a trying week ended with victory 
still papering over the cracks, but it's a results-driven industry. Georgia, a win. We've got to celebrate it. Roll on Copenhagen on Wednesday night. It does mean that your manager is still in with a job. He's still in a job. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to feel too sorry for him when he does lose his job ultimately because, of course, he'll get the big million-dollar payout. But, uh, oh, that's true. yes, Eric Ten Hag still in a job for now and he's got a, a relatively straightforward week, certainly on paper, FC Copenhagen on Wednesday night in the UEFA Champions League. And then before yet another international break, it's Luton Town at Old Trafford at next weekend. Quick word on Luton, a fantastic 1-1 draw with Liverpool yesterday. They... they they rode their luck uh, ultimately it was a 95th minute equaliser from Luis Diaz that rescued a point for Liverpool but they'll take great heart from that Will Luton but uh, yeah United at Old Trafford you'd still expect them to beat Luton Town next weekend please I mean, Luton Town. Luton Town, back in the Premier League it's a great story this they, they came up on merit last season uh, they have been They've been knocking on the door. Uh, they've been unfortunate with some of their performances and results at the start of the season, but it was a great one yesterday. They did ride their luck, no doubt about that. They were 1-0 up deep into stoppage time. Liverpool finding a way to get an equaliser. But yes, uh, Luton Town out of the bottom three. And uh, yeah, upward they mobile. I hope at least that won't be the case on Saturday when they visit Old Trafford next weekend. OK, tennis, because Novak Djokovic oh. victorious again in yes, Paris. record-extending seventh Paris Masters trophy. He was always going to win this one. A bit like India in the cricket. Uh, cricket. He beat Gregor Dimitrov 6-4, 6-3, 36 years of age, a sixth title in 2023, Georgia. When you look at his hard court record this year, he's played 34, he's won 33, he's lost just once. He is the greatest to ever pick up a tennis racket. I say that through gritted teeth. But he is quality, is Novak Djokovic, and he was far too good for Grigor Dimitrov yesterday. Chris McCarty there joining us with all our sporting headlines. He is, of course, head of sport here for ARN, head of sport for Dubai 103.8. And he's back on your airwaves from 5pm this afternoon with Off Script. Of course, the team uh, broadcasting from 5 until 8pm. You've got Chris, Robbie and Sonal. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Yes, welcome back to The Agenda. Georgia here, keeping you company. And it seems just a matter of days ago that he was warning of its potentially catastrophic effect on humanity. Yep, that is Elon Musk. Uh, he was warning that it was uh, it did have the potential to destroy human beings, but it turns out he still wants a piece of that AI pie because over the weekend uh, he started or he released his first language model in a bid to take on OpenAI, Google and Meta. Now, uh, the, the company XAI, which is sort of a a sort of connection to Twitter, if you think about the X. Anyway, they released their brand new chatbot. He's called, I say he, I think it is male. They called him Grok. Um, and he will be closely integrated with X, which, of course, is formerly known as Twitter. And Elon Musk claims that by giving his model real-time access to information from that platform, it'll have a distinct advantage over other models that rely on existing and therefore older data. Interestingly, he also appears to have given something of a personality to the platform, saying it loves sarcasm, it's capable of humour, and will, and I quote here, answer spicy questions that are rejected by most other AI systems, raising the question mark over the word spicy. But is that a good thing? Do we want a chatbot that answers questions using real-time information from X or Twitter? Earlier, I caught up with Rob Sparrow. He's a professor of philosophy and applied ethics at Monash University's Data Futures Institute. And he agrees it is an interesting approach. It's supposed to be a little bit more aggressive and confrontational than the other language models, which tend to have been policed pretty heavily so as not to say anything too terrible and offensive that might damage the market share of the manufacturers. But I, I haven't had a play with this one, to tell the truth yet. It's quite interesting that Elon Musk has decided to give this large language model a, a personality almost. Do you think these chatbots should have character. Other models have had personalities. I mean, one of the interesting questions about these systems is whether it's possible for them not to have a personality. 
people I know have complained about Bard being particularly sort of woke, you know, being policed in what it is willing to say. There's been lots of people complaining about what they see as a liberal bias. But you know, no matter what it says, people are going to interpret it as having a personality. I think what's um, perhaps interesting about this latest one is that it seems to have been shaped by Musk's own <laughs> interests in being a, a provocateur and perhaps attracting attention at the expense of saying things that are necessarily that sensible. Do you think that we'll ultimately end up using the chatbot that most suits our own personality? Do you think there'll be sort of more left-leaning chatbots and more right-leaning chatbots ultimately when it all comes out in the wash? I mean, I think eventually we'll end up with chatbots tailored to our own personalities. I think that they will eventually learn from us in the same way that search engines already learn from your past search history to work out what you're interested in. I think eventually we'll be in a situation where everyone has their own chatbot, a virtual assistant that has a sense of what their interests are and you know, more worryingly, the kinds of information that they want to hear. So you can imagine these things pandering to us in various ways that uh, wouldn't be very healthy. It already feels like a dystopian reality in many ways. I think probably because so many of these new ideas that are coming to the forefront now were sort of first expressed in science fiction movies and science fiction books. Are you concerned about the rise of, of the chatbot? I'm concerned about social isolation associated with everybody spending all their time online essentially talking to a computer. I'm worried in some of my research I've been looking at uh, the idea that these might become our companions and that we might form friendships with things that really don't care about us and in some fundamental sense are lying to us that they do uh, care about us, but also that that will take us away from having relationships with real people who might actually be able to spend time with us and help us and relate to us in ways that human beings need. I do think the role of science fiction here is interesting because people want to build the future. You know, engineers set out to build the future and what does the future look like? Well, it's all the things that people uh, wrote in science fiction, but the people who are writing science fiction weren't necessarily intending to think sensibly about the future. They just wanted to tell good stories. They wanted to sell books. Uh, so as a way of progressing forwards with technology, trying to realise something that was dreamt up by a bunch of novelists, that doesn't strike me as being a great way to go about it. Do you know I've not actually heard it framed in that way before? And of course, you're completely right. What's so interesting is that so many of these sort of genius characters, often over in Silicon Valley, seem to have loved those science fiction novels and now seem to be trying to recreate them as the reality, as the future. Yeah, so Star Trek in particular has been immensely influential in shaping uh, technology, but as, as has Star Wars and... You know, these aren't particularly profound works of art. They're not really intended as a good blueprint for a society or, or a technology, but people, you know, they saw flying cars in the Jetsons or they saw androids in science fiction films and they think, well, when I grow up, that's what I'm going to build. And that also shapes people's ideas about what counts as a futuristic technology. Uh, so there is this sense in which we are following these dreams from the 1950s without reflecting on whether or not that's a good way to make important social decisions. A few days ago in the United Kingdom, a lot of countries came together to sign something that they called the Bletchley Declaration, which almost sort of sounds like something you'd sign in a war. And in that, they, they talked about the potentially catastrophic risk of AI to humanity. Do you feel that that type of language is accurate, or do you think that they were getting a bit ahead of themselves, maybe? The first thing I think is that if you really believe that there is a risk of catastrophic harm, I think you'll be taking more determinate action than that declaration sets out. I mean, one of the things that's striking about it is it doesn't really say very much about what the signatories are going to do, other than that they'll keep meeting keep studying it and dedicate themselves to the problem. Whereas if you think, well, this might end the world, 
You might have thought that you should stop doing it, for instance. I do think there are some potentially catastrophic risks, uh, particularly from the use of military AI. I'm worried about the risk of accidental war associated with the uses of military AI. I do think that democratic politics is going to be much more difficult when essentially it won't be possible to trust anything you see on film, anything you hear on the radio, because it could all be generated by AI. Uh, In many ways, I think this is also potentially a very totalitarian technology. It makes state surveillance much more plausible, cameras everywhere, everything that we communicate being listened to. Um, That's not something I look forward to. My goodness me, not a positive end to that interview, it's fair to say. Rob Sparrow, a professor of philosophy and applied ethics at Monash University's Data Futures Institute, giving us something very serious to think about this Monday morning. The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.